Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus in biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Marcus Kaiser about the new book, Changing Connectomes, Evolution, Development, and Dynamics in Network Neuroscience. An up-to-date overview of the field of connectomics introducing concepts and mechanisms underlying brain network change at different stages. Changing connectomes is a suitable starting point for researchers who are new to the field of connectomics and also for researchers who are interested in the link between brain network organization and brain and cognitive development in health and disease. Well, Marcus, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, thanks very much for having me. So how are you? How has your week been? Oh, it's been it's been very good. Um, we are setting up a network in the UK to basically look at novel interventions for brain disorders, uh, taking into account how the brain is organized as a network. So can you tell us a bit more about what you do? Um, I look at how the brain is connected, both for healthy subjects and for brain disorders. I develop computational methods to predict interventions, in particular brain stimulation, and I'm setting up an experimental lab to actually help patients who have brain disorders um, to reduce symptoms and to get cognition back to normal. And how did you get interested in studying brain? Uh, I was always interested in, well, first in computers (laughs) when I was very young, Um, and I always wondered what's the difference between computers and brains. Um, So I studied biology and computer science And I was interested in the hardware architecture of brains. Uh, So rather than looking at function, I was interested in how is the brain organized as a network. Um, I then did an internship to look at brain connectivity at the very early days when the field was really novel. And I really started to get interested in how the organization is linked to cognition, how it's linked to brain diseases, and how this information can be used to intervene uh, with those diseases. Were you at any point intimidated by the complexity of human brain? Um, well, uh, brain research is a very complex research area. So there are um, a lot of papers, uh, a lot of results coming out. I think one nice thing about looking at the brain as a network is that you can abstract away from several details Um, So you can look at the global architecture of the brain rather than focusing on all the details that we know about the brain. And just looking at the global architecture can already give you some insights how the system is organized. And along your career journey, were there any mentors that really supported you along the way? There were several mentors along the way. Uh, So I did an internship during my my studies at the Max Planck Institute to work on a research project. And that was a lab led by a physicist, um, but he was looking at development of biological tissue. 
So it was basically a combined project doing experimental study in uh, green algae, uh, and at the same time looking at theoretical uh, models of how those systems are self-organizing. So it was an early start to think about interdisciplinary research and bringing different topics together. Um, and then later on, when I studied biology, um, I worked with Professor Hoffman and he suggested to do an internship looking at brain connectivity in a lab in the UK. So it was really important to have those mentors and to, to get some advice what topics are out there. And what would you say to our students and early career researchers? Hmm. Um, I think it's really important to get research experience uh, as, as early as possible. So don't, if, if, if possible, don't wait un, until you start your master thesis or PhD thesis to get research experience. So you can do internships during your studies. Uh, you can have uh, student jobs where you can already be part of research projects. Um, so it's very good to start early on to get a better understanding of, of how research works. And I would also say just... At, at a young age, um, take more risks. <laughs> uh, so be uh, um, so, so. You should really look at what are novel areas of research and what are important questions in the field, rather than sticking to topics that are already well established. So I would really encourage people to to take risks early on, um, because it's really rewarding to move into novel areas. It's um, it feels more difficult, so it was definitely difficult for um, for me in the early stages to uh, publish articles um, because there were no reviewers who could assess the, the, the content. It was a really novel area, um, but I think it's, it's better the, for the career to move into novel areas. Oh, very well put. <laughs> <laughs> so your latest book is Changing Connectomes, Evolution, Development and Dynamics in Network Neuroscience. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Um, well, there were several books about brain development already, but they all look at brain functions. So they would say that at a certain age, uh, humans develop a certain brain function, um, but they never look at how the hardware is changing. So how is the network changing over time? So I wanted to write a book about what we know already about how the brain is developing as a network and how the network is changing for healthy development, but also for brain disorders. And I wanted to write a book about how we can change the brain again through learning or through brain stimulation or through changes in lifestyle. Um, and th that book hasn't been out there and it's really looking at those mechanisms. How is the brain organized as a network and how is it changing? So let's dive into some of the topics that you cover in your book. And let's mm. start with the very basics. So can you explain what is connectomics? Uh, okay, so the connectome is the set of connections in the brain. Uh, connections could be between brain regions, that could be, for example, fiber tracts, or it could be connections between individual neurons, if you have an axon that is connecting two individual neurons. And unfortunately, we don't have that complete information for many organisms. We only have complete information for one organism, which is the small roundworm uh, C. elegans. Um, so for that organism, the, um, it only has 300 neurons. We know exactly how those neurons are connected uh, based on electron microscopy. Um, but for all other animals, including humans, uh, we only have uh, large-scale data. So we have some indirect data how the brain is connected, but we don't have the complete picture yet. 
So how did we start learning about connectomics? Hmm. Um, so there was some information early on about small circuits, uh, for example, in, in the stomach, how different neurons are connected. Um, but then in the mid-80s, we got information about how the elegance is connected. And in the early 90s, we got information about how different regions of the brain and rhesus monkeys are connected. And this was really the starting point to have this kind of data available. And then people started to analyze the data to, to see what kind of architectures are there in the brain. How is the brain organized and how does this organization link to brain function? So it all started in the 80s and early 90s. And I assume in those days, they didn't really have these supercomputers, didn't they, uh, to study these kind of things? Yes, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question because uh, the first analysis of brain connectivity was done in BASIC. <laughs> um, and it, it was basically some calculations were running for weeks at a time. So it took a very uh, long time to, to calculate some properties uh, of the network. During my PhD, I was trying to get data about how C. elegans is connected. And that data was on a five-quarter-inch floppy disk. And so I got the book through interlibrary loan, and I found someone who still had a five-quarter-inch floppy disk. Um, and then we found out that the disk was not readable anymore. The magnetic uh, information was all lost. So thankfully, I found someone on a mailing list who could send me that data by email. Um, so it's, it's really the early days, but um, during my PhD, I did some calculations that again took three weeks. <laughs> so, um, so it's always a, a challenge. And nowadays, we have large data sets. We have information about uh, how human brains are connected from 50,000 subjects. Uh, and again, analyzing this data would take several months. <laughs> so, um, so there's always a challenge, even nowadays, in terms of processing data. So can you walk us through the process of how you acquire the data and then how what you do with it? <laughs> yes. Um, so there are different ways how to do it. The gold standard to get the data is uh, an invasive method. So you're basically injecting a dye into a brain region and that dye is then traveling to other parts of the brain through fiber tracts. And you can then slice up the brain and if you inject in one region and you find dye in another region, you know that there must have been a direct fiber track connection between those two areas. Um, of course, there's a problem with this gold standard. And the problem is that you have to be dead in order to look at the connectivity. <laughs> um, so that's, that's really bothering people. There were some post-mortem studies in humans where terminally ill cancer patients agreed to donate their brain. So when... A brain death occurs in those patients, the brain is, is quickly extracted and you can do those experiments. And those are very small data sets, not very systematic in terms of searching for all connections. Um, thankfully, we now have a non-invasive technology. You can use a standard MRI scanners in hospitals. You can use magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, you use a special uh, measurement protocol and you can then reconstruct how the brain of a subject is connected. And this is really a breakthrough because it allows us to look at brain connectivity in people who are still alive. So we can, we can look at children, we can look at um, uh, adults. There's even one study in London, the Developing Connectome Project, where we can look at brain connectivity before birth. So when, um, when basically uh, um, 
the organism is still in the womb, we can already reconstruct brain connectivity before birth. So as we learn about the healthy connectomes, I assume that it's really important to know what is healthy in order to then see what's happening. So then where and how do we look for these things? So you already mentioned the C. elegans, but what else can we do? Yes. Um, so, so basically, in the olden days, there was only, only C. elegans and the rhesus monkey. Uh, but now there are many species where we know about brain connectivity. Uh, the fruit fly, um, the mouse, the rat, uh, the cat, pigeons, different kinds of uh, monkeys, uh, humans. And I think nowadays there are even studies about connectivity in elephants. So, so a lot of different species uh, now have information about brain connectivity. And we can use that as a starting point. And the interesting point is that many different species show a similar organization. So whether you look at the elegance or you look at the human brain, uh, there were similar features in all those networks. Uh, there was a modular organization. And this means that some parts of the brain are specializing for a certain task, uh, let's say processing of visual information. And when they're specializing, they have many connections within a module, but few connections to other parts of the brain. So they're very good in integrating visual information, but it doesn't interfere with processing in other parts of the brain. So we have those similarities between uh, many different species, and we can look at the organization of the brain and already predict the age of a human subject, for example, plus minus eight years, uh, or intelligence as measured by the IQ, plus minus five IQ points. So we can look at this organization, and this can already tell us something about a cognition and about brain function. This is truly fascinating uh, to me, and especially thinking about uh, different species of animals that have different inputs from the outside world. For example, are the connectomes of dolphin similar or different to elephant? <laughs> yes, I, I didn't look into those two specifically, um, but there was one study about the connectome in pigeons. Uh, and of course, pigeons have a very, uh, very different brain. Uh, so the so birds have a different brain to uh, to, to mammals. Um, but there was a long discussion that there were some parts of the organization that are similar. Um, so in terms of evolutionary terms, there might be some differences. But in terms of the organization and the function, there are similarities. And because of that, there are also similarities in brain connectivity. Um, so basically... Most organisms have, uh, have eyes, so they have visual sensors. And because of that, you always have connections going from the eye to different parts of the brain. And whatever the evolutionary origin and whatever the, uh, the detailed anatomy, those connections are always there. So there are always some similarities between different species. And then when we look into one of the species, for example, so how do connectomes evolve and change from the very early development uh, into when organism ages? Hmm, yeah. Um, so one change is that early on, the brain is developed as, as a more uh, randomly organized network. So you have lots of connections all over the place. And then you have a lot of connections during brain development. Uh, this is a healthy process. Um, you have a lot of cells that are dying before birth, so at, at really early stages, before you have a lot of sensory input coming in. And this early cell death helps in shaping up the architecture of the cortex. So we had a paper uh, early last year where we could show that you don't get the same architecture if you get rid of cell death. So you really need lots of cells dying and up to 
up to 50% are dying uh, before birth in order to get the proper architecture that we see in humans in different brain regions. Um, but you also have a refinement after birth. So we had one uh, article where we looked at changes between the age of four years and 40 years. And you have a loss of connectivity during that stage. And loss of connectivity sounds sounds very bad. So it sounds like there might be some, some cognitive deficits. Um, but this loss of connectivity is actually beneficial because it's reshaping the network. It's refining how different systems are connected. And it basically helps to remove some of the noise and, and some of the information that is not useful and leads to better processing of information. And then, of course, you have a loss of connections at the older age, and that's not benef beneficial anymore. So um, you have cognitive decline, uh, even in, in healthy subjects, uh, you have a loss of, of memory and, and, and a loss of other uh, functions. But even more severe, you have uh, a decline in dementia, for example, or Parkinson's disease. So you have a larger extent to which connections are lost for those brain disorders. So now thinking about the disorders and diseases that can impact connectivity. So what kind of these disorders are there? Hmm. Basically, uh, nowadays, most disorders that have been studied show changes in brain connectivity, uh, whether it's epilepsy or schizophrenia or depression, uh, or whether it's ADHD, anxiety disorders, uh, or whether it is uh, old age diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. Um, so we see changes in all those diseases and one change, for example, is in Alzheimer's disease, a change in the hub architecture. Um, hubs are highly connected parts of the brain. Um, you can think about the role of hubs if you think about the airline network. Uh, so, so London Heathrow or, or Geneva would be uh, hubs of the airline network because they're highly connected. You have many airline connections between uh, those airports and other parts of the system. And because those airports are highly connected, a lot of passengers are traveling through those airports. So, so a lot of um, information spreading or, uh, well, if you think about uh, COVID virus spreading, um, is, is happening, happening through those nodes of the network. And it's similar in the brain. You have some parts of the brain that are highly connected. Those are often older structures of the brain, uh, like subcortical structures like hippocampus and amygdala. Uh, they're connected to almost everything else in, in the network. Um, and because of that, if you have any disease uh, that is affecting those network hubs, it leads to severe deficits. And this is what we see for dementia and other diseases, that we have changes in highly connected nodes of the network, such as the hippocampus. And this is then leading to deficits. Because one role of those networks is to integrate information and to spread information because those networks have so many connections. And if you have deficits in connectivity of those uh, network hubs, it's more difficult to integrate information. That's what we see in dementia. It, it's difficult to, uh, to access memory and, and to, um, to process information um, because some connections are lost and you have longer delays in the network. It's absolutely fascinating. So it really gives another dimension to these kind of disorders, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other dementias. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's also a lifestyle uh, um, aspect to this. So in, in the book, I mention how the brain develops, but I also mention what interventions can do. 
And one intervention at old age is basically to train your network. Uh, so to learn a second language or third language at old age or to, to, to study something new or discover something new at that age um, because it keeps the network more flexible. So it's still possible to establish new connections at old age. And we had one article where we showed that we can, to some extent, uh, predict whether people are um, moving onwards to dementia just based on the flexibility of the network. So if the network is more flexible, if it's easier for information to travel through the network, um, it's less likely to develop dementia or you develop dementia only at a much later age than other subjects. Um, so it's something I always tell my master's students. Um, so just do a PhD because then your network will be more flexible. <laughs> so the years, <laughs> of the, the years of education um, is basically reducing the likelihood to get dementia. If you have more years of education, so you do like a master's degree, a PhD and so on, uh, you're less likely to de develop those diseases. Um, so it's always a good idea to uh, to study and to learn something new. So it's really leveraging the plasticity of the brain, isn't it? Uh, yes, I mean, the, the brain is a lot more plastic than, than people might think. Um, so people think about brain changes in early development, like, you know, teenager years, or they think about early adulthood and... Uh, then people might think that well, that's that's basically it. So so your brain is adult and uh, nothing nothing is happening. Um, but a lot of things can happen to brain connectivity, and it's possible to change brain connectivity through lifestyle, um, through um, through interventions, brain stimulation with one intervention. So there are in many ways how you can basically change the brain even at old age. So is it also the case uh, when people lose, for example, their sight or their hearing uh, that their brain really rewires itself and makes new connections? Yes, yes, there can be massive rewiring. Um, so it was studied in, in monkeys uh, when you can basically remove parts of the brain uh, or remove some connections of the brain. There was massive rewiring going on. Um, and we see that also for peripheral lesions. So, so basically, if uh, one eye stops working, you have a rewiring of, of the system. Um, and I had one article last year that we can, to some extent, predict what part of the brain takes over the function. So the idea is that it's a part of the brain that already has some similar connections. Um, so if, for example, you have some damage in the visual system, the area that takes over the function must have some kind of visual input, otherwise it will not work. Um, but if that area already has some kind of visual input, it might be possible to partially compensate the lost function uh, that is due to the damage. And those ideas can be used to look at brain connectivity after stroke or after traumatic brain injury. Um, so we're working with some, some colleagues to use connectome information to predict what happens after brain injury. Excellent. So can you expand a little bit on this topic? So how can connectomics be integrated into our medicine? Hmm. Yeah, so I think that's really the next step in the field. Uh, over the last uh, 20, 30 years, we learned a lot about how the brain is connected and how the brain changes for different brain disorders. But the next step is to bring this into the hospital. Um, we're working with a company, Biomax, in Germany, and they develop a platform to look at hospital imaging data um, and we can use that data to predict how to intervene. And one example is epilepsy. So for epilepsy, in one third of the cases, uh, pharmaceutical drugs are not working. 
And then the only option is to use brain surgery, where some parts of the brain, potentially relatively large parts of the brain, um, are removed. But the problem with epilepsy surgery is that in one third of the cases, surgery doesn't work. Uh, so people still have epileptic seizures after surgery. And we can use computer models based on brain connectivity to basically predict whether surgery will work or not. We can do that with more than 90% accuracy. So this can be used in the hospital to have a prediction whether a planned surgery will work or not and to identify what parts of the brain should be removed. Um, because the nice thing about a computer model is that we can do a lot of tests. Um, so, so we can measure how the brain of a patient is connected and we can look at thousands of different surgery strategies in our computer model and we can test what the effects would be and predict what would be the most suitable intervention for an individual subject. Um, so there was one study in France um, with Victor Giesa basically using computational models to predict the effects of surgery. That is fascinating, and especially thinking about the complexity of all of this uh, system. For example, I work uh, at APFL, and we've got the Blue Brain Project uh, in Europe, where scientists try to model a small part of mouse cortex um, mm. using uh, neural networks. And uh, yeah, it's just fascinating how much data and how much processing power it takes. Mm. Yes, yes. I mean, that's, that, it's always a question in, in the field how much information you need. Um, so do you need to model a system at, at the cellular level, at, at the level of individual synapses, or can you abstract away and look at just a brain region as an oscillator, as, as, you know, as a very simple, simple structure? Um, at the moment, our hope is that we can use, uh, do a lot with simple structures, um, but it might be the case for some diseases that you need a more detailed model. Um, and we developed one uh, analysis pipeline where we can parcelate the brain into 50,000 nodes. And if we do that, we get local connectivity as well. So we know about connectivity uh, within brain regions. Um, and we were showing that this local connectivity can give us a better prediction about the effects of epilepsy surgery. So it's more informative. And we now want to use that for other diseases like schizophrenia um, to understand whether we can actually predict whether someone is progressing towards schizophrenia. So you might have subjects that are at risk of schizophrenia. So maybe they show early signs. Uh, maybe they had family members with schizophrenia. So the question is, can we predict five to 10 years in advance whether someone is on a pathway towards uh, developing schizophrenia? Mm, and presumably this way is much more accessible, isn't it? Uh, yes, because we don't uh, need histology, so we don't need to, you know, resect parts of the brain and, and do electron microscopy and reconstruct uh, cellular circuits. So we can basically use the information we already have with non-invasive MRI scans. So your book uh, really lays out very well uh, the whole um, sort of idea in, of chronic and uh, all, all the underlying uh, things in the chronic itself. So when you think about researchers who are studying brain disorders, how is it difficult for them to actually integrate it in their line of work? It's, it's getting a lot easier nowadays. So when I did my PhD in, in 2002 to 2005, I could only dream about getting human connectivity. So, so all we had was C. elegans and, and rhesus monkeys. And 
relatively uh, soon afterwards, 2006, 2007, there were first data sets about human brain connectivity. And nowadays, there's the UK Biobank project that is measuring brain connectivity in 100,000 human subjects. Um, so that's a really large data set. We can uh, look at how the brain is changing over time. We can look at cognition and how it's linked to brain structure. And there were data sets for many brain disorders, for dementia, um, for epilepsy, um, for ADHD. Um, so we can basically access those online databases. And uh, those are all available. And it's also possible to get your own Connect Home data sets just using a standard MRI scanner. Um, and, and using those protocols to reconstruct brain connectivity. So I think it's really becoming accessible for, uh, for many researchers. And the other point is that we have novel ways to interact with connectomes. So we have novel ways to simulate connectomes. And one novel technology is focused ultrasound. So we can directly use sound waves uh, to stimulate deep brain structures. And uh, this is very important because we can really understand what are the mechanisms in the brain, what happens if we increase or decrease activity in brain regions, what is the role in the brain. Uh, and this can lead to novel interventions for brain disorders, and it can help us to understand cognition in healthy subjects. And with regards to the data, so how open is the community when you want to, for example, share your data set? Is it possible? Uh, yes, it's possible. Um, so there were large online databases. Um, you can basically register and then download the data. So they're really available. Um, there were projects, uh, Open Connect Home and, and Open Warm and so on. So there's several projects making uh, data available. And in general, the field is quite open to data sharing. Um, so, so my opinion, I think it's easier to get um, Connect Home data than getting electrophysiology data. Um, mm. So it's 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 very um, it's it's a very open field and it's it's kind of lucky working in this area because people are quite friendly and and open in sharing data. And do you see any potential in uh, uh, sort of collaborations with other disciplines like uh, neuropathologists or biochemists to really supplement uh, both fields? Hmm. It's, it's, it's really important. Uh, so one hot topic in the connectomics area is the link with genetics and with gene expression. Um, so there were some uh, early studies, uh, for example, by Petra Vertes in Cambridge, uh, looking at the link between genetic information and brain connectivity. So there was a, there was a, a move towards getting more information about genetics, about uh, metabolic changes uh, and brain connectivity changes and linking different areas together. And in general, the field is very open towards collaborations. If I look at my own lab, uh, there were members from mathematics, uh, members from medicine, members from engineering. So there are always different, um, different research fields collaborating to study brain connectivity. And where do you see this field going further? So what kind of avenues do you think is going to follow, both in technological sense and more in idea sense? Yeah. Um, so I think the next step is, is really to change connectivity. Um, I wrote this book and the title of the book is basically a double meaning. Uh, so, so one meaning is uh, how the connectome is changing uh, naturally. So it's understanding what happens during early brain development, what happens during aging and, and during different brain diseases. But the second meaning is how can we actually change connectomes ourselves? Uh, so how can we change brain connectivity through learning, or through brain stimulation. 
And I think the next step is is really to change connectomes, to think about what is wrong uh, with a certain brain, uh, what is wrong with the wiring, and how can we change the wiring in order to improve brain function. And this is, on the one hand, a big application for brain disorders, but it might also be an application in the future for cognition. So I'm on the scientific advisory board of a startup company, BrainGrade, and they are looking into treatments for dementia. But of course, the long-term idea is to also improve cognition in healthy subjects. Hmm, I've got a slightly maybe off-topic question as well, you know, thinking about the connectomes. And how does the deep brain stimulation kind of feed into it? Does it change connectome at all? It, it, it changes the functional connectivity. So it changes how well two different areas are connecting. So there was a paper by colleagues of mine, and also we just had a paper accepted last week, um, where we look at the changes after implanting deep brain stimulation uh, electrodes for Parkinson's disease. And uh, what we find is there are changes in, in, in connectivity in the brain. And the more those changes go towards uh, healthy controls, um, the more beneficial is the implant. So, so it can be a way to assess whether an intervention is working or not. So the closer we get uh, to healthy wiring, um, the closer we get to a removal or a reduction in terms of symptoms. And what would be your favorite unanswered questions in connectomics? Um, I think the favorite unanswered question is really, can we replace pharmaceutical drugs? Um, so, hmm. uh, so, so we, we know that pharmaceutical drugs are working, but the side effects are huge. And so the reason is once pharmaceutical drugs go for the blood-brain barrier, they are all over the place. So so, um, so the whole brain is, is basically showing changes because of those pharmaceutical drugs, which is leading to side effects. What we really want is something that is more targeted, uh, where we only stimulate one region in the network rather than uh, changing activity in the whole brain. And we can do that with non-invasive brain stimulation, such as focused ultrasound. So the long-term goal of my research is really to replacing pharmaceutical drugs and to have interventions which are better tolerated by patients. I mean, patients don't really like drugs. For many diseases, there was a lower rate of compliance because the side effects are so severe. So it's really important to have non-invasive brain stimulation technology, to have alternatives to the pharmaceutical drugs that you are using nowadays. And now thinking about the bigger picture, more on societal level. Hmm. So what? why should we use such a multiplicity and, and different approaches to studying brain? Um, so I think the benefit is really to have personalized interventions. Um, and so personalized intervention can be informed by some metadata, like the, the age of a subject, for example, um, or some, some clinical data about, uh, about the disease. But it can also be informed... Uh, with brain connectivity. So we already know that uh, brain stimulation works better if we take into account how the brain is organized as a network. So the future is, is really to have personalized interventions uh, to improve cognition uh, for brain disorders and for healthy subjects. Um, but of course, there is also an ethical question. The ethical question is, um, to what extent should you use those, proper, uh, those um, methods in healthy subjects? So nowadays, if you have uh, children at school, uh, 
the, the teachers might say you're not allowed to use programmable uh, calculators during the exam because you might actually store text in your calculator and, and then, you know, you might cheat with your, your calculator. Um, but basically in, in uh, five to 10 years, uh, teachers might say don't use brain implants because it's another way of cheating, right? I mean, you're, you're improving um, your, your problem-solving skills by, by using brain stimulation. Um, so, so there was... There was this question to what extent we allow brain stimulation. And there was also the question about long-term side effects. So you already have computer gamers that are using brain stimulation. So they buy a 9-volt battery. They stick electrodes onto their, the front of the, the head. Um, and then they stimulate. And you can get better, better focusing when you do that. So you can focus better on your computer games. So you have better performance when you do that. Um, but the question is, what are long-term effects? Um, so if you do that for five or ten years, are you more prone to get uh, psychosis? <laughs> are you more prone to have some negative effects on the brain? Um, and this is something we want to address with our UK network to basically look at effects of non-invasive brain stimulation and also get some idea of what long-term effects could be. So there was this uh, component of... Um, running computer simulations of long-term effects, but also those ethical aspects to really assess that properly. Oh boy, I'll have to throw out my <laughs> DIY brain simulation device now. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's like uh, they, they will all be bent. But of, of course, the, the problem is uh, they can proliferate a lot easier than nuclear weapons. So it's, it's really difficult to, um, to stop people buying 9-volt batteries. <laughs> <laughs> And what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Changing Conic Tomes, surprised you the most? Um, so I think one thing that surprised me is to what extent we can change brain connectivity. Um, so even though I was, I was working in the field for some time, um, writing the book, I was reading up more on the literature. And it was interesting to see what changes are possible. Um, so when you learn to play piano, we see changes in brain connectivity. And... Um, there are changes when you, learn a sec when you learn a new language. You also see changes in brain connectivity. Um, you see changes in, in disease recovery. So if you think about anorexia patients, um, if you have eating disorders, we see a shrinking of the brain. So the, the gray matter gets thinner, like the cortical sheet gets thinner. Um, and after successful interventions, when patients are recovering, the cortex is getting thicker again. <laughs> So there are a lot of changes uh, that that can happen because of interventions. So the brain is is very very plastic, very uh, malleable and changeable, um, at even at old age. So I think that was a big a big discovery when writing the book. And then, if you could rewire your brain to obtain the, some kind of superpower, what mm. would be your choice? Uh, yeah, I think I'm. For me, I'm getting older, so I would, I, I would like better memory. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's it's not really a superpower. It's just you know retaining the abilities that you have. But um, I, I mean, coming from computational neuroscience, it, it it does make sense that the older the brain gets, uh, the more difficult it gets to to um, to save novel information. So. Um, so there were maybe some principal trade-offs to what extent you can improve the brain, but um, but better better memory would be superpower. A couple of terabytes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, this has been a fascinating discussion and really exciting area of research. So then, can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? 
Yes. Um, so I'm currently working on changing brain connectivity with focused ultrasound, which, which is non-invasive. Um, so it's something that, that patients would be, would be very keen on. Uh, we're currently just testing it in healthy subjects, but we want to move on uh, and do experimental studies in, uh, in patients suffering from brain disorders, um, in particular looking at schizophrenia and other neurodevelopmental disorders to see whether we can have an impact and whether we can change the trajectory, the progression towards those diseases. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Yeah. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter if you just search for Connect Home Lab on Twitter. Um, you can buy the book from MIT Press, uh, from Amazon, from your local bookshop. Um, you can type in tiny.cc slash connecthome, and that brings you directly to a website of the book. So those will be some ways uh, to follow me. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been truly a delight. Yes, thanks for having me. Uh, goodbye.